Welcome back to the Gospel of John. We took a little break last week for those of you who weren't here. We had a guest speaker, a great friend of mine, Aaron Kraft, who was a former pastor of Franconia Baptist Church, uh, now turned missionary. So he's headed out to Mexico City and actually uh, spending a little bit of time in Kentucky before he gets there. But it was a great week to have him here. And what a, what a great message that he gave us uh, about Jesus, uh, you know, talking about us being salt and light from Matthew 5, the Beatitudes. Um, today we're going to be back in John, John chapter 8. Grab, grab your Bibles and turn to John 8. If you don't have a Bible, down the middle column of seats, there's a couple stacked underneath your seat. You can hold down to the person on the end to, to give you one. we got a long passage today, so I'm going to do something different. I'm not going to make you read out loud because I didn't put all the, the scripture verses on there. But I would like you to, to read along with me. So John chapter 8, we're going to be reading uh, verse 31 through all the way through the end of the chapter, verse 59. I'm going to start reading. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you'll become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham's our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works of uh, the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's business desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Verse 48. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. How how have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, it's a a beautiful morning, but it's a a morning that we both acknowledge and are reminded that we need your help. We need your help to to get what out of uh, your word you want us to get out. We we need your help, Lord God, to to gain understanding. We need your help, Lord, to to even uh, come to grips with this truth that Jesus is giving us uh, as he gave it to this first century disciples. Lord, we need your help that you might change us so that we wouldn't see these words as words written years ago for somebody else, but 
uh, in, in, in your presence and, and sitting under your word that we would know it's for us as well and that we would heed it and it would make us like you. We pray this in your great name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. All right, so I was, uh, I don't have a TV, but I was looking at my iPad, and I, I'm, it's an it's, uh, interesting week because it's, it's, uh, the debate season has already come alive, right? So on Thursday, the Republicans, all 17 of them in two different sessions, had, uh, had their first uh, presidential debate, and quite, I mean, it was quite interesting. Um, and this is what both intrigues me but scares me about uh, presidential debates, because over the last several years of, of debates, I mean, they've, they've gotten hot seated, right? I mean, you're expecting that these well-respected, intelligent, just well-put-together men are going to come and lay out for us uh, their perspective on what's going on in the country, how it could get better, and what they bring to the table, but a lot of times those debates, at least in the past, have turned out to be just like spouting matches and, and one-upsmanship and, and, and diming each other out. Um, I was impressed that this last Thursday's debate didn't have a lot of that. They were able to cover a, a, a breadth of issues. It was interesting, the, the, the breadth of candidates on the stage. And, of course, a couple of them stood out. There were only a couple moments that got heated. And, and I, I wouldn't say there was one upswingship, but definitely there was uh, some, some pointed moments where they were pointing each other, each other out and the differences that they had with each other. Uh, but I, I'll tell you, it's, this never fails to, to make me laugh. So after the, uh, these political opponents uh, finish saying whatever they're going to say, the, uh, the commentators, they announce that the, the debate is over, and it's seemingly as if these political rivals are the best of friends. They go hugging, smiling, the families all come on the stage, and it's like, yeah, we're best of friends. We just want to tear each other's brains out because we're all vying for the same office. Uh, it's it's kind of crazy. So the reason why I bring up debates is what we're reading here in this text really is a debate. This is Jesus um, really from John 7. Um, we could actually go back to John 6, but it continues in John 7, and it uh, sort of culminates in, in John 8. He's going back and forth with, with religious leaders, and he's having a, a debate of sorts. But really what Jesus is doing is he is... Uh, he is countering the claims of those who are countering his claims. Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. I come to give you living water. I come to be a light to the world. He says all these things. Uh, here he say, he's going to say some other great things. And there's these opponents that are debating him saying, well, how can you be that? Well, how can you do this? And Jesus is coming to confront them in regards to who he is and just just lay it out. And so unlike political, uh, um, you know, the, the candidates on the TV this week. Jesus isn't coming necessarily to, to give a soundbite or to score points with, with the crowd. Jesus isn't interested in, in us um, getting any kind of political spin from him. Really what he wants us to do is, is understand who he is, why, why he's coming to the world. And as John lays it out, he wants us to believe in him, believe that what he's saying is actually true, believe that who he's uh, presenting himself to be is, is who he is. And more importantly, Jesus is trying to give us a deeper understanding of what he's doing in the world and what he promises to do inside of us. So that really is what the, the gist of this debate is. His focus uh, in John 8 is simply this. Um, he tells us that we are enslaved without him, that we're following the wrong person if we are without him. He says that without him, something has captured our affections, and, and if we don't lend ourselves to him, to know him, to follow him, then we'll die a fitful death without him and be enslaved forever. Jesus is, he comes saying that, I've come to, to give you freedom. I'm the one that comes to, to liberate you. And so given that, my hope is that we would encounter the word afresh that, I mean, these are a lot of words. I mean, a lot of words. There are some uh, memorable lines, verses here that you've heard before. And my hope is that they would come alive in you, not just for this first century crowd, but really as Jesus meant 
uh, meant them. More importantly, I think we're going to be confronted with a few things here, and I pray that we will receive it well and also respond well. So with that, uh, we'll dive in. Uh, a little bit of review first. So chapter 8, um, at the beginning of chapter 8, the Pharisees are dragging a woman who has been caught in the, the act of adultery. They drag her out to the temple courts right out in the open, and they bring her to Jesus, and they say, Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law says we should stone her to death. What do you say? And, of course, Jesus knelt down on the ground. He started scribbling something in the, in the dirt there, stood up, and he said to the crowd, well, okay, let's do this. All of us among uh, gather here. Whoever is without sin can throw the first stone. And, of course, you'll have to go back two weeks and listen to the sermon to see what happened with that. But basically, from oldest to youngest, they all turn and, and walk away. No, no stone thrown that day. And then later on, Jesus follows that up, and he says some very amazing things. In John 8, he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, will, will have the, the light of life. Think of what light does for any room. Uh, it, it, it dismisses darkness. Uh, Aaron Kraft said last week, if we were in FedEx Stadium and had 67,000 people and it was pitch black and someone lit a pin light, everyone's eyes would be trained on that one light. That's what light does. It penetrates darkness. Jesus says he comes to penetrate the darkness in our world. But more importantly, he comes to penetrate the darkness that's in us, because if it weren't in us, it wouldn't be in the rest of the world. And, and, and then Jesus just unfolds this, this great idea of, of who he is. Uh, again, these, these far-reaching uh, deity declaration I am statements throughout the rest of the, the chapter. And then we come to verse 30. And verse 30 is interesting because, uh, you know, these are... These are people that are following Jesus, listening to his words, and at one moment they're antagonistic, and the next moment it seems like they're, they're inclining to Jesus, and his words are taking effect. And this is what it says in verse 30. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. I mean, what do you get from that? It sounds like Jesus' words and also his actions are changing hearts, exactly what's supposed to be happening. I mean, it's as if they, you know, one moment they're fighting with Jesus, but in the next moment, got pictures of their heart, they're holding hands, rocking back and forth, kumbaya, my Lord, right? They're doing a kumbaya moment. That's not the end of the story. Somehow, between verse 30 and the end of this chapter, verse 39, something happens that stirs up... Uh, the feelings of kumbaya that's going on between these pseudo-believers of Jesus. And really, the, 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 the burden of my sermon is to, to discover what that is. All right, so verse 31 32. Read these out loud with me. They're on the screen. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Um, I, I can't help but recall uh, Sanford and Sons, old Red Fox, and uh, his cousin Esther. Y'all remember Esther? She was to wear a hat, church lady, and she called him, the, the, I think she called him a devil, right? That was her, his, her favorite name for, for, uh, for him. And, uh, and she used to say this phrase all the time. All right, I'll get that in a second. Um, there are some interesting things in these two verses, and obviously my focus is going to be on these two verses, and then we're going to spend a little bit of time in the rest of the passage. There's four things that I think are worth, are worth noting. The first is, I mean, who is Jesus talking to? I mean, the very first line, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, I mean, are these non-Christians, are they um, just like tag-along people who, who don't know him? Are they strangers? I mean, the, 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 the verse says, John is commentating, John the evangelist, these are these are friends of Jesus. I mean, it's like his posse. There's, there's his fan club. These are people that had seen his miracles, had bought into his words, and they were like true, true blue, like, I'm going to follow you, Jesus, until the end of the earth, or at least so it seems. These people had, these are, I mean, in our day, our vernacular would be, they, they heard the, the pastor's sermon, 
they felt something going on, either a tingle in their ear, or like I'm, I'm just getting nervous, I got to do something. Um, and they responded to the, the word, the message going on. They walked the aisle, they signed the card, they prayed a prayer, they did something that seemingly would have been a gesture toward following Jesus. That's who um, John is saying these people believed in Jesus. They were people who had intently heard his words, seen his miracles, and um, started to follow him. That's the first thing. The second thing is, you know, th- this, is, this is a familiar phrase. Um, not just if you abide in him, you're truly my disciples, but mostly this part, and you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. I, re- I remember it growing up because I didn't go to church growing up from, from co- you know, Cousin Esther. She said it all the time, every ap- episode of, of Sanford and Sons. Uh, but really, you can look across culture and and see glimpses of this phrase. In academia, if you go to a university campus etched in stone over the archway that leads into the campus, they'll have this phrase, several of them, the truth will set you free. And they, of course, are giving a notion of you're coming to this institution of, of, of learning to gain truth that's going to liberate you from all those things that are holding you back. Um, it's in TV shows. Uh, there have been video games that have used The Truth Will Set You Free as a title to uh, missions that you enact in, in these video games. Oprah says it almost, you know, when Oprah is in her heyday on, I think it was ABC, I mean, she used that phrase all the time, right? And if Oprah says it, it's got to be gospel, right? <laughs> Absolutely. She made it famous. Here's the deal. Pop culture uses this, this phrase, but they have no idea it comes from Scripture. At least I don't think they do. Uh, and of course, when the school uses it, I mean, they're not using it in the connotation that that Jesus is giving us here. So what does Jesus mean? This, is, this comes to a, the third thing that I think we should see in here. Jesus is telling us those kind of people that are on the path to freedom. He's talking about discipleship. He's talking about what a true disciple looks like, or what a Christian should look like. And there's two things in regards to this. Firstly, um, they're ones who abide in my word. Now, you perhaps may have a different translation. Other translations might say the NIV says, uh, hold my teaching. The New American Standard says, continue in my word. But really, the, the, the thought is, is really the same. Uh, Jesus doesn't say we can make ourselves disciples. He says we become disciples as we abide in his word. Um, this word is, is key in the Bible, but particularly in John. If we flip the, to John chapter 15, uh, that whole chapter is about us abiding in, and how, how Jesus puts it, abiding in the vine. Abiding means remain, continue, or dwell. Think about that. If I'm going to abide in something, I'm going to hang around, I'm going to be around it, I'm going to be in it, I'm, gonna, I'm in it to win it. It also means life connection. And so in John 15 in particular, Jesus is presenting himself as a true vine that we would have to be connected to even to survive. I'm going to turn there and read a couple words from that. We'll we'll get to John 15 in a couple months. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does, does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you're clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. What's Jesus saying? There is no such thing as life outside of me. You got to remain, continue, dwell with me. That, that really is the, the, the thought that he's putting here. When we abide, we, we show ourselves to be disciples. Um, I didn't necessarily grow up like this, but I know people who did. Uh, you, you think there's two tiers of, of Christianity. First, you have the JV tier, and those are just called Christians, like a Christian Christian. Um, you're a Christian Christian if you grew up in America, and your parents might have gone to church, your parents might be uh, spiritual, or you might have went to church every once in a while. Everybody in America is a Christian, all right? That's the JV version. But your uh, elevated tier if you're a disciple, because if you're a disciple, I mean, you're like reading your Bible and praying and perhaps going to Bible study and church a couple times a week. And so, I mean, you got your Christian, but then you got your disciple. Um, and of course, that's false. Uh, there's, there's one kind of Christian. There's one kind of disciple in the Bible. And it's the kind that all of it's supposed to be following Jesus. 
That's the first thought about abide. This is the second thought. Um, being a disciple is not just about believing. I've said that a couple. I've said that phrase a couple times throughout the the last two chapters um, of John, and and this is the first time I'm going to explain it with a little bit of detail. Um, it's it's not enough to believe. Why? Because the demons believe and they tremble. And when's the last time you've seen a, a demon um, worshiping and loving and serving Jesus? It's not going. It's not going to happen. But here's what here's what he means. Jesus is 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 meaning that being a disciple, following Jesus, abiding in Him, has to be accompanied by something that you actually do. Here's what James says. James says this. I ain't got it. All right, here you go. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. So James is saying um, you have to believe in it, but there should also be an accompanying thing that we are actually putting feet to our faith. Uh, one other person said, we, uh, um, I'm going to find my words. Uh, R.C. Sproul said, we should possess what we profess. In other words, don't say something if your actions aren't going to back it up. Another person said, we put action to where our mouth is. And so we need to believe, but we also need to be doers of the word. What we should do, what we do should reflect who we are. If we say we are a Christian, we should also look like one. So that really is the the essence of what it means um, to abide. And, and so what Jesus is doing here is he's starting to call out those people who say they're a Christian, but, and, and they should really be a, a disciple Christian, but they're, they're laissez-faire. They're, they're not, their, their actions aren't um, lining up with what they profess. That's the third thing. Here's the fourth thing. And this is interesting because it's in regard to freedom. Um, what do you think of when you firstly think of the word freedom? Most of us think of, I do anything I want, when I want, where I want, with whomever I want. That's the essence of freedom. It's like a leaf flying through the autumn wind, and it blows through the air, and it lands somewhere in this you know, pristine other pile of leaves. Um, and Jesus is, is, is confronting us in regards to that. He says, that's not freedom. Think about it. If if everyone on the planet, honestly, if everyone in here did whatever you want, when you want, with whomever you want, our freedom, our individual freedoms would, would interfere with other people's freedoms. And so Jesus is saying the ultimate freedom is not doing what you want, when you want, with whomever you want. He says freedom starts contrarily when you're holding tightly to me, holding uh, to, to my word, abiding. Jesus is clarifying who a true follower is. And, you know, I think what's, what's happening here is these disciples think he's going to start praising them because they're saying Jesus, Jesus starts this, this, this phrase with, um, if you abide in me, you're truly my disciples. And they're probably thinking, oh, I can do that. I've been following me around Jesus for the last year and a half. Come on, let's keep walking. But then he turns the corner and his words start confronting them in the really in uh, the next two verses. Uh, look back at verse 32. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. I mean, what is the truth that sets us free? What is Jesus talking about here? Uh, if you look a few verses down, he actually clarifies himself. Verse 36, he says, so if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Jesus is saying, in both of these verses, he's saying the exact same thing. The truth sets you free. The Son sets you free. Guess what? The truth is the Son. The truth, Jesus, Jesus the Son of God, the Christ, sets you free. That's what he's saying. He says this same thing later on in John chapter 14, verse 6. He says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus says these same phrases over and over again, hoping that uh, ears would hear, hearts would perceive, and it would sink into uh, people and it would change them. Jesus isn't saying, I tell you the truth. He isn't saying, I am true. He's saying, I am the truth. That means the standard that we should live our lives by. He's the one that sets us free. And really, in the middle part of this passage, we see how they respond. And they don't, resta- they don't respond too good. 
Verse 33, they answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and we've never been enslaved to anyone. Now, hold it right there. They're lying. Right. Because think, think about it. All right. So you had Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. Joseph was enslaved in Egypt, rose to second in command, brought the whole nation to to Egypt several hundred years later. Guess what? They're in slavery in Egypt. Right. And then in Israel's history, even after their heyday of David and all the kings, they were enslaved by the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Greeks, the Syrians, uh, the, the Syrians. And during the first century, they're oppressed by the Romans. These jokers are lying, right? <laughs> what verse was I on? All right. They answered them, we're offspring of Abraham. And we've never been enslaved by anyone. How is it that you say you'll become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you are free indeed. These are these are these are some confronting words. They're confronting for this first century crowd because, again, this crowd wanted they wanted their ears tickled. They had, you know, selectively started following Jesus. So they wanted Jesus to pat them on the back and continue to make bread and say these nice things to them. But Jesus, again, was he was after true disciples. okay, not Christian Christian, but those who were going to follow him and abandon, you know, to the the abandonment of, of following themselves and doing whatever they wanted to do, thinking that freedom was was free to to do whatever you want. Freedom was instead being uh, abiding in him. And so he says these very hard words. He says, everyone who sins is a slave of sin. It's everyone. ESV says everyone who practices sin is a slave of sin. Now, I don't want you to look around, but the, the truth is that includes all of us in here. If we practice sin, we're a slave to sin. And this is going to challenge you a little bit. Even after you profess faith in Jesus and you're following him, there's still parts of you that are that are closely linked. to. I mean, you ever gone a day without sinning in your life? Heck, no, you haven't. You haven't. These are our words. And he he wants us to come to grips with that. You know, Paul discusses this same idea of of sin, being in sin's grips in Romans chapter seven. Romans chapter seven is is uh, is a debatable um, chapter. Paul is talking about the the effects of the law and sin. He says, "I was I became aware of my sin through the law. Does that make the law bad?" And then he's having a rhetorical conversation with himself, and he says, "Ah, no, nah, the 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 law pointing out my sin doesn't make the law bad. It's just being the law." The, the bad part, that's in me. Verse 13. Actually, verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual. I'm actually, I put it in, in a uh, New Living Translation. This is the New Living Translation. So the trouble is not with the law, for it's spiritual and good. The trouble is with me, for I am all too human, a slave to sin. I don't really understand myself. What I want to do what's right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. Now, you know, we're in a room, probably a good 85, 90 percent of y'all are following Jesus. Christians have one point in your your life professed faith in in him and are intently trying to to do what's right in regards to your relationship with God. Um, Can you all identify with this? Have you ever had a moment where I want to do this, but I. uh, okay? so that's less, you know. This this is our existence. This happens to us. Paul is saying true words. Uh, when Paul is talking about being a slave to sin, he's not talking about being, you know, we think it's, well, this has got to be some deep stuff, right? He's not talking about being addicted to drugs um, or being an axe murderer or even being an alcoholic. He's talking about the things that trip us up in the normal part of our life. But he's talking about something much deeper. And this gets at the doctrine of original sin. And this, the, the thought of the doctrine of original sin is that Adam and Eve, it's not their first sin, but Adam and Eve set in motion um, things, uh, sin in our world that affect us. Okay, Adam and Eve disobeyed God, 
uh, eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, sin entered them, sin entered our world such that the curse of God caused sin to pervade everything that exists in God's good creation. How do you know we sin? All right. Those of you with new babies, at some point that baby, you know, we're naturally selfish and the baby wants it wants what it wants. Of course, it's trying to deal with new life. But uh, those babies whine and cry when it wants something and they know you respond. And pretty soon that baby grows up and, you know, and they become us and we still are selfish. We whine and we cry and we, we want to be satisfied and soothe and pat it on the back and care for and all those things. That's just an example of, of sin. Here's what Paul means. And this is, here's what uh, Jesus is getting at in this text here. He's saying there is our wills are constrained by sin. Our hearts are inclined to it. We're provoked to sin. We think we can handle it, but often the sin in the sense that we're tempted by um, overwhelm us to the point where we give in. Perhaps for you, it might be uh, just in, in honoring and respecting a spouse in marriage. You know you're supposed to, to, to do that, but something selfish in you doesn't want to do it. And when you don't do that, really, that's, that's sin tempting you to be selfish instead of extending grace and giving love the way that Jesus would have, have given it. Uh, you know, think of all those ways uh, that you want to restrain your words at work with your friends, amongst your family, uh, in your neighborhood, and you don't restrain your words. Think of all those times that you are tempted to gossip. I mean, you just want to talk about somebody. I was like, I got some stuff on them. And you're just looking for somebody to talk to, right? So you can tell it. Easing into that conversation, guess what I heard, girl? Right? And you know you're not supposed to say it, but you say it anyway. And uh, honestly, one of the things that trips up a lot of us on a more serious note, especially the men in here, is, is the issue of lust and pornography. Um, and that's one of those things that just ensnares us. We put stuff, you know, we put um, restrictors on our phone and on our computer. And, but, you know, in a moment of temptation, we, we sit down, we get behind that computer, we tap away, we, we slide the iPhone and voila, it's there. That thing that we don't want to do is, for, is, is front and center of our life, and we do the very thing that we don't want to do. So here's what um, Jesus is bringing out. There's lots of ways that we're slaves to sin. The reality is, in our world, we think we're free, but that's not the case. We are far from it. We're born slaves to sin, and this is why Jesus says in verse 36, If the Son sets you free... We must be set free or else we'll perish in our sins. So don't let me let me not give you the impression that we're always slaves to sin. But without Jesus, you are enslaved to sin. That's what Scripture is saying. What we see next through this middle, uh, this middle part of the text, verse basically verse 38 all the way down to um, 47 is uh, is these pseudo believers of Jesus working hard to reject everything Jesus has claimed for himself. Specifically, in this, in this passage, they're rejecting this, this idea that Jesus is the truth and he's the one that sets us free. They just don't want any, anything to do with that. In fact, just like what we would do, they try to replace Jesus' claim with, with what they think about their own selves. And we'll see that in three different ways. The first is in verse 30, uh, 39. They rely on their lineage. Verse 39. They answered him, Abraham is our father. It's as if they were saying, no, Jesus, I mean, you know the Old Testament, right? The Old Scriptures? I mean, we're the Jews. We were given the law. We're kind of special people. We know how to follow God's commands, and we, we know we're supposed to do it, and we do it well. Abraham is our father. And, of course, Jesus, I mean, Jesus, I mean, he's not going to put up with them. He doesn't play with them here. He just says, no, you're wrong. Verse 39, the second half of verse 39 into verse 40. He says, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, 
a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. So they're playing the Abraham card saying, hey, Abraham's our father. Abraham's the father of faith. We come from a great family, a long lineage of people who have professed faith in a God that's going to deliver us. We know that he's going to he gave a promise to Abraham and we are the fulfillment of that promise. But Jesus points them to uh, verse 56 and he says, I'm sorry, verse 58. He says, no, verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So Jesus corrects them. He said, you know what? That promise that Abraham was given by God, that um, his heir, uh, would be bl- the nations would be blessed through him and that a, a seed would come that would bring that about. Hey, it's not you. It, it's me. I am the seed. Um, how does this apply to us? I, I think very, very simply, your your blood lineage, your bloodline, um, your your pedigree doesn't it doesn't make you free. It doesn't set you free. You might come from an affluent family. You might come from a long line of Christians who have never done anything wrong. You might have a, a family that's influential in society that's been uh, pastors, elders, deacons, board members of a church, you might even be John the Baptist's great, 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 great grandson or daughter. None of that stuff saves you. It doesn't, and it doesn't set you free. We can't live off of our parents' faith. And I say that just for the, for the young people, because um, I wasn't necessarily like this, but I know f- uh, friends who were, they grew up in the church, and they thought because their parents believed that they automatically believe as well. It's just too easy um, to think that. And sometimes parents, we believe that as well. Uh, We know we're following Jesus as best as we can. And we assume that because our kids are coming to church, they're going to kids ministry or in youth group. They seem like they're doing the right kind of clean cut stuff that they're following Jesus. But here the the word is um, lineage doesn't save you. Being from the right family, the perfect family doesn't um, doesn't set you free. Jesus blows up this argument. The next thing he does is he plays a religion card, verse 41, the latter half of verse 41. We were, uh, we have one father, even God. And so what they're, what they immediately respond with is, all right, so if you want, if you don't want to hear that, here's the other half of this. Uh, uh, God is our father. We claim Abraham, but if you don't want to hear that, we also claim God too. And Jesus obviously destroys that argument as well. He says right after that in verse 42, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. He sent me. And so um, this is like my friend John. Yes, I've told you all before, I came to faith reading the the Gospel of John. And one of my good friends, his name was Jonathan, uh, grew up in the church. Um, he was a, a, a well-abiding um, young man. Uh, he did all things right. And he said at some point, uh, his mother died of cancer when he was young, and it rocked his world. It rocked his world such that his faith was shaken. And all that he knew was right um, fell apart. And what he found out reading the Gospel of John, not necessarily chapter 8, but uh, a little bit further uh, earlier, is that he had been doing all these things. He was clean cut. He did what was right. He went to youth group. Uh, obviously, he had good parents. He thought all those things were, were things that, were, that made him uh, the right person that he, was, he wanted to be. But he was reading John, uh, John 5, 39 one day, uh, and it says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it's they that bear witness about me. He said uh, this passage in particular alerted him that he was doing all these things that were, were pseudonymous to him being a good person, being moral, doing right. And he, he figured out from reading John that it, that stuff didn't save him. It didn't make him right with God. And a lot of times we give all these excuses of um, of coming from the right family, being in a, a Christian family, and of course the religion card. I am a good, moral, upright, outstanding person that makes me okay with God. And Jesus destroys that by saying, "Ha, huh, no, you're, you're, no, you're not." And so the message here is: trying to behave right for God can't make you right with God. We can't do religious things 
um, be around religious people and think that that necessarily is a true follower, a disciple of Jesus. And the third argument is, is, is very simply found in verse 41, the first half. We were not born of sexual immorality. Um, that's a strange phrase to find in this text. Um, it seems like it's coming out of nowhere. But what's happening is, is on the street, obviously, Jesus, uh, they assumed Jesus was an Ill- illegitimate child, that, um, that he was a bastard. His mother was, had a child out of wedlock. They, they didn't know Jesus' true lineage. And this phrase that, he, that we weren't born out of sexual immorality was really just a pot shot at him because they had nothing else to say. They're saying, well, uh, we know who we are, but you got some daddy issues that you got to get over. And this is a, an argument for moral superiority. It's, it's when those people that you see are, are out there and you're up here because of all the things that you got going on in your life that you're doing right, that they perhaps might not be doing right. Jesus goes with it. Verse 46 and 47. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you not hear them is that you are not of God. And so Jesus, uh, I mean, he, he gets a little aggressive here and he basically says, all right, so if you want to if you want to get on the moral bandwagon, who of you here can convict me of any sin? Of course, that's a, a very aggressive thing to say. Uh, if any of us said that around each other, some of us would probably pick up stones and, and, and try and hurt somebody. Right. But that's the deal with the, the morality in our culture. We think that God will love us if we're just nice to people. We think God will love us if we do the things that are right. Help a little lady across the street. Uh, those kind of things. Are those the right things to do? Should we do those things? Absolutely. We should help little old ladies across the street. We should be nice to our neighbors. But our problem, however, is not simply moral. It's relationship. We sin against God and we sin against other people. It's like the husband that cheats on his wife and he goes and mows his neighbor's lawn thinking that good deed is going to make his marriage better. That's kind of ludicrous, right? Okay, so in a relationship problem, you got to get the relate you got to go to the person for whom the relationship has been estranged and get it right. In this case, we, because of our sin, we're estranged from God. And so to go to God, obviously we have to go to Jesus. We are slaves to sin. We do what we know we shouldn't do. And we need someone to remove the sin, to liberate us from that so that the relationship can be intact. A good moral person will not set you free. So many of the Jews are just like, uh, so many of us are just like the Jews of that day. And here's what we say. I don't need you, Jesus. I got my, my good family that I come from. Uh, they're upstanding in society and uh, they are paving the way for me to be a moral, upright citizen as well. We say, I don't need you, Jesus. I've got my religion. I know the good things I'm supposed to do. And those good things are going to get me a long way. We say, I don't need you, Jesus, because I have good morals. I, I know the things that I'm supposed to be doing right and I do them well. And in the midst of that, Jesus drops a bomb. I'm going to back up to verse 44. He tells them the truth. He tells them the truth in regards to who they are and who they belong to. And these are pretty heavy words. Verse 44. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. I mean, I mean, Jesus is like, bam. All right. So if you don't want to listen to anything else I say, here's the truth. You're of the devil. I mean, I don't, I don't How do you recover from that? Those are hard. I mean, and of course, it would be easy to say, you know what? Jesus is probably just mad at them. He's angry because they 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 uh, they poke pot shots at him. They told him that he was a, a, an Ill, illegitimate child. And so he's angry and he's trying to, to talk back. But really, that's not it. These Jesus has spent a lot of time with these people. They had spent a lot of time with him. And so they've gone through the, the litany of, of these, of John's testimony about who they've lived it. They've seen him in, in, in what he articulated in John 6, say, I'm the bread of life. They saw him multiply just a little bit of food to feed thousands of people. They saw him uh, moments after that, um, 
come to a scene where he said, I am the living water. I've come to, to, to nourish you. I've come to give you uh, water that will quench your thirst and will give you the very life that you need. And of course, then he says, I'm the light of the world. You're walking in darkness. I got a bright light to shine so you won't trip over and hurt yourself. And what do they say? It's like, well, no, Jesus, thank you. I don't need any of that. I'm good to go. So what we have here is not an, an, an angry Jesus. Jesus is not fed up. It's a Jesus that loves his people enough to tell them the truth. And so Jesus is really just telling the truth to people who need to hear it. And this is what he's saying. Without him, we're followers of our father, the devil. And now those are hard words, isn't it? Without Jesus, we're, fo- we're followers of our father, the devil. And he presents himself as a God who loves us so much that he calls us out. He's honest. He's truthful. He sees that we're about to get crushed by the semi truck that's going by. And he pushes us very hardly so that we might even fall on the ground. But he'd rather for us to fall on the ground from his push than to get crushed by that truck. Which is a loving God. He's like a great physician who sees a disease that we're all plagued with and And he calls it out. He names it for us so that we know what the disease is so it can be treated and worked on. Jesus tells us we're slaves to sin without him. We're followers of our father, the devil, and we're carrying out his desires. But then he gives us good news. And this passage, although there's some ups and downs in it, and he's being very confrontational with people who don't, who say they're following him, but but they don't. He gives them good news. And the good news is right up front. I am the truth. And I've come to set you free. I am the liberator who's come to um, free you from all those things in your life that have enslaved you and that you can't even free yourself from. That's what Jesus is saying. You know, Romans 6.23 says uh, the wages of our sin is death. That means at the end of the ages, there's going to be a judgment, a day of the Lord, whereby those uh all of those who are walking in sin and can't give an account for it other than I, I did it and I, I did it, okay, that they're going to suffer God's wrath. And Jesus is saying that he comes to redeem us by the price of his blood. That on the cross, his blood paid a ransom for, for us. He's also saying that he also frees us from the power of sin. Romans 14 says this, sin will have no dominion over you because he's, uh, we are not, um, sin should not be your master for, what's the rest of that phrase, guys? Sin shall not be your master. Come on, Romans, Romans 6.14. I didn't even write it down because I know it by heart. You are not under law, but under grace. You're not under law, but under grace. He frees us by the power of his spirit. And so he frees. uh, Jesus is the freedom fighter for our bondage. He says, I am the truth and the truth will set you free. So what does it look like for you to be marked by truth? I'm going to end here. What does it look like for you to be marked uh, by the truth and by freedom? Here's some ideas. If you're a young person here, you're free not to rely on your parents' faith. But you enter in your own personal relationship with God. What would that look like for you, young people? To actually have your own relationship with God, reading the word, praying to Jesus, following him of your own as the spirit leads you. Secondly, you're free to let go of the hurts of your childhood. You know, many of us in this room, I don't know what it is about childhood. I think even if you come from a good family, there are there are hurts that come from from the things that go on. Okay, even our perception of things that go on. We carry bags from from our childhood and Jesus is able to say, no, drop your baggage off from me and you're free. Thirdly, you're free from a whole lineage of darkness in your family. Perhaps you come from a family that has a whole list of stuff that was just, just wrong. Spouse abuse, alcohol abuse, sickness, disease, those kinds of things. Jesus, as our liberator says, no. He allows us to draw a line along our lives and say, no, Jesus sets us free from all of that. Perhaps his freedom for you looks like your entry into a new family. That's what the church is. We are adopted sons and daughters of God. 
What would our city be like if we weren't just morally upright people paying our taxes, trying to be light, but we were moral and upright because we want to please our father and we're marked by him? There's a difference there. And lastly, what if we stopped condemning people and instead loved God and others, extending his grace and mercy to those around us so that it was clear who our father is that people couldn't but help but ask, who are you? You're different. And that gives us a doorway to profess Jesus. There's two other things here that are important for us. Firstly, verse 51, we're not going to look at it too much. Jesus tells that he offers us life without death. At some point, we're all going to die. A pastor or minister is going to stand over you, and he's going to say these words. If you're a Christian, he's going to say, you know what? This body here is the remains of, of Jeff Toomer, but Jeff's not, Jeff's not dead. Jeff's yet alive. In fact, he's more alive now than he was when he lived, when he walked the earth. And that's what Jesus is telling us here. He's saying, I tell you the truth. That's, that's his way of saying, believe this. Don't let go of it. You won't see death as you abide in me, as you believe in me. And then lastly, um, as we've seen before, uh, he ends this idea. They, they ask him all this talk. He's like, who in the world are you? And Jesus lets out another bomb. He says in verse 58, truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. Another one of those deity statements that Jesus says, hey, guys, I am all that I said I am. And this harkens back to Exodus 3.14, where God um, reveals himself to Moses at the burning bush. And he says, uh, I am. I exist. I am all that you've been looking for uh, in a deity. So what do we make of this? Um, Very simply, Jesus comes to set us free. Are you free? If you profess faith in Jesus, then he has freed you by price, his blood spilled on a cross, and his power, his Holy Spirit living in you to make you free. It doesn't mean that you don't sin. We won't stop sinning until we, until we die and go be, be with Jesus. But he has made provision to make you free. If you're not a Christian, this passage says that you are still enslaved in your sin and you are of your father, the devil. That's a hard word, but it's the tr- truth. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Your word is true. You are true. Lord, I pray that with these heavy words that you would give your people ears to hear and eyes to see, hearts to receive. I pray, especially for those who have yet to receive Jesus, that they would, something would penetrate their minds and would matriculate down to their hearts and really you regenerate, that you would make souls come alive under the, the authority of your word. Jesus, as we started this sermon today, we said we need you, uh, even more we need you. Would you come and reveal yourself to us? Those of us who profess that we believe in you, would you come and help us not to just give lip action to those words, but live it out. To be people who not only say that we believe, but to to walk it out, put feet to our faith. Jesus, we love you. We trust you. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.